Let us now read together from God's precious word as we find it in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 18 through 27, and then we will skip a passage and go on to the verses 46 through 56. This is God's word. And it happened as he, that is Jesus, was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you among you all, will be great. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. The text for this morning is from the following verses, the verses 57 through 62. Now, It happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, some time ago I watched a science program that dealt with herd mentality. That is, with the inclination of people to be blind, to be a blind follower of others. The scientists did several experiments with various peoples in different situations. In one scenario, they had a speaker addressing several hundred people in an auditorium. But as the speaker got going, he started spewing all kinds of nonsense, stringing well-worn cliches together in a non-coherent manner. After the speech, he waited for the audience's response. Two people in the front stood up and started clapping enthusiastically. Soon others followed suit, and with only a few exceptions, in no time flat, all the people were on their feet giving the, uh, the speaker a standing ovation. After the crowd quieted down, a scientist informed the people that this was an experiment in group herd mentality. He told them that the first two people who stood up to applaud were actors planted there to do that. They wanted to see how the rest of the people would respond. Afterward, they spoke to some individuals separately to determine why they stood up to applaud. Obviously, the speech did not warrant such a response. They responded by saying that they did so because they thought that if others thought it was such a good speech, they must be right. They trusted the collective opinion of others. Also, they did not want to stand out from the crowd. They didn't want to appear as if they didn't know what was happening. So, they followed along with everybody else. Brothers and sisters, God has created us as social human beings to care about each other and each other's opinions. We should not be an island to ourselves. It's important to be part of your group, your family, your church, your colleagues and friends, but that should never translate into groupthink. In his first letter, the Apostle John says that he must test all things to see whether they are from God. Why? Well, because we should never be blind followers of others. And people are sinful and can lead you astray. Every person is unique and has their personal hang-ups, quirks and shortcomings and reasons for their opinions and actions. And so 
we have to think for ourselves. And that means that sometimes we must stand out from the crowd and think about what we do and why. That takes wisdom and discernment and spiritual maturity. Sometimes it takes a lot of courage, for there is always a cost involved. By going against the flow, we may lose the support of loved ones, and perhaps even a lot more, even our very lives. So what exactly does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, that's what the Lord Jesus wants you and me to think about in this morning's text. He wants us to consider the reason for and the cost of following him. That is also the theme for this morning's sermon. Consider the cost of following the Lord Jesus. And we will see three things. We will see that you must be willing in the first place to give up your comfortable bed. In the second place to go against the expectation of others. And in the third place to leave your mortal family. So first then you must be willing to give up your comfortable bed. The time had come for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. The final stage of his ministry on earth was about to begin. At this point, the disciples still thought that Jesus would be like an earthly king, restoring the kingdom to Israel and becoming once again a powerful nation like it was at the time of Solomon and David and Jeroboam II. As we know from Acts 6, or Acts 1 verse 6, that is what the disciples thought right up to his ascension. They thought that he was going to restore Israel to its former glory. For that reason, they were angry when the village they wanted to lodge in rejected Jesus. They asked Jesus for permission to pray for fire to come from heaven to consume them. But then Jesus rebuked them. They did not understand his mission. They did not understand how his kingdom is established on earth. Not established by violence or rebellion. No, it is by gentle persuasion and personal sacrifice for the sake of God's eternal heavenly kingdom. And then we have a conversation with three possible followers. And then Jesus takes that principle to a higher level. Luke recounts that as they were on the way to Jerusalem, a would-be follower, who, as we know from Matthew 18, was a scribe, a teacher of the law, told Jesus that he would follow him wherever he goes. And no doubt this scribe was already committed to Jesus and had been following him for some time. But now he is eager to make a public profession of his total commitment. But why? Does he realize what is involved in such, in such a journey? What it means to follow Jesus? It appears that he is so, so eager to follow him because he thinks like Jesus' disciples, namely, that Jesus will triumph over evil using the sword and other worldly methods. 
To the mind of the Jews, evil came in the form of the foreign nations that oppressed them, and they were waiting for God to send them someone who would deliver them from the foreign powers. And this scribe thinks, well, that Jesus, he's the man to do that. No doubt Jesus is fully aware of this man's thinking. Note well how he answers him. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And that expression has special meaning to the Jews. According to Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, the Son of Man will establish a kingdom all over the world that would never be destroyed. He will be the greatest ruler this world would ever see. That's for whom the Jews were waiting. Now, what does Jesus tell him? Well, indeed, he identifies himself as that Son of Man. But then, instead of referring to his power, he speaks about his weakness. And the fact that the world does not want such a man. For, listen to what he says. He says, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Oh, sure, the Son of Man will defeat all the worldly nations, but not in the way that they think, not as a conquering hero, but as a man of sorrows, rejected by the world. In fact, he is saying to him, if you want to follow me, then you better realize what that means and what kind of kingdom I will establish. My kingdom is not of this world. This world does not even want me. And the same thing is true of any would-be followers. The world will also reject them. And therefore, they too must be willing to let go of their comfortable place in society. They must be willing to let go of their comfortable bed at any time. A follower of Jesus will not find a comfortable resting place here on this earth. That's what Jesus and his disciples were confronted with when the people at that Samaritan village rejected them, refusing them a place to stay. And they did so because Jesus was going to Jerusalem, to the Jews. But those Samaritans wanted him to be their earthly king. And so they didn't want him. And that's why Jesus says that even the foxes and the birds have their holes and nests on this earth, but not the Son of Man. The obvious meaning about the foxes and the birds is immediately clear. Even animals have a place to call their own. However, his disciples will have understood this also in a different sense, a political one. A nation under siege, as Israel was, will refer to its oppressors in symbolic ways. For you do not want to risk provoking your enemy unnecessarily. Anyone who would say anything negative about their overlords would be punished. You are not allowed to speak ill of the ruling authorities. That's how it works in dictatorships. Any dissent or criticism is not tolerated. Just think how that functions in countries such as North Korea, China, or Russia. And so the word fox had more than one meaning, a derogatory one. That is clear from what we read elsewhere in Scripture. 
At one point in Luke 13, verse 32, Jesus refers to King Antipas as that fox. A fox is known as a very clever and cunning animal. Such animals could also do a lot of damage. From their lairs, which were no more than burrows in the ground, they would make their nightly raids, hunt for small animals, devouring eggs and fruits, and devastating the fields, orchards, and vineyards. And so you could see how Herod could be called a fox. He was very clever and cunning, and he also did a lot of damage. And he had a lot of power. And the Romans, they also had a nickname. Because they had the eagle as their symbol, they were also often referred to as the birds of the air. And the Lord Jesus is saying to the wannabe follower that only those who go along with the world and with the powers that be, such as Herod and the Romans, will have a comfortable bed to sleep in. Like the fox and the bird, they will have a comfortable place on earth. But that's not how it is for the Son of Man or anybody who follows him. And so the message... to them is this. If you think you can follow me, then please realize what you leave behind. You cannot be part of this world and the world that I am offering you. You cannot remain in your comfortable bed and still follow me. The one excludes the other. This world seeks earthly comfort and thinks that this world is its final resting place. But I offer you a heavenly comfort, an eternal comfort. My kingdom is beyond this broken world. And therefore, if you want influence, if you want power and fun now, well, then follow the birds who are here today and gone tomorrow. Follow the fox who manages his own earthly affairs with considerable cunning and deceit. But in their world, the Son of Man stands powerless and alone. And that will also be your fate if you follow him. And so, what are you going to choose? Their world or mine? We don't know what decision that wannabe follower made. He doesn't answer. But the point is made. He wants his his disciples and all of us to think about this. But the same thing applies today. If you want to blindly go along with the world and partake of its sinful practices, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. You must be willing to leave behind all you have here on earth and throw in your lot with your Lord and Savior. What does it mean today to follow Jesus? Well, brothers and sisters, it also means that you are following a rejected leader. This world hates Jesus and his followers. This world hates those who want to follow that man from Nazareth. His claims are too radical. His demands are too great. He requires that you consider everything that you have as secondary to him. Your money, your house, your possessions, your children, your parents, even your life. 
The world does not want to follow such a radical man. And the question is, do you? We must constantly ask ourselves, who am I following? God and what he wants and what he has to offer or what I want or what other people want. Every day you have to make that choice. And your choices in life will determine where you are headed, whether you are on the road to destruction or chaos and turmoil or on the road to life, eternal life. Where is your life leading you? To make a similar point, Luke also includes a second dialogue with someone who is this time not a volunteer, but a recruit. The Lord commands him to follow him. The second point. From the type of command that Jesus uses here, it is apparent that this man is a new recruit. Jesus says to him, follow me. But then the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And you would think from this, as most people do, that this man's father had just died and that he wants to go to his dad's funeral. It is his intent that as soon as the funeral is over, that he will come back and follow Jesus. And so this seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? However, now consider the time and the culture in which this took place. Burial took place very quickly, normally within a day. That's even the case today in the Middle East. For in a hot climate, the body decomposes very quickly. Therefore, if his father had just died, what is this man doing on the road talking with Jesus? You would expect that he would be preparing to bury his father, wouldn't you? And so, no, his father hadn't just died. This man is referring to something that still lies in the future. And that is clear from the meaning the phrase has in the Middle Eastern culture, in the Middle, Middle Eastern culture of that day. According to that culture, the phrase, let me go and bury my father means, let me go and serve my father, while he is still alive, and after he dies, I will be free, I will bury him and will be free to come. To bury one's father is a traditional idiom that refers specifically to the son's duty to remain at home and care for his parent until they are respectfully laid to rest. The culture of that day required the son to stay close to his parents and take care of them in their old age. After all, they didn't have social programs, etc., like we have today. Only once he has buried his parents can he consider other options. In Middle Eastern society, that is still the case today. When, for example, a family discusses immigration, at some, in the, at some point in the conversation, someone will ask, Aren't you going to bury your father first? Typically, the prospective immigrant would be in his early 30s. The father on discussion would be expected to live still for another 20, 30, or 40 years. The question is, are you not going to stay until you have fulfilled the traditional duty of taking care of your parents until their death, and then consider immigrating? That's what's expected. You do not just leave your parents to fend for themselves. No, you look after them until the end. And that is what your friends 
and relatives also expect from you. And so what then exactly is this man saying? Well, he is saying to Jesus, my circle of friends and relatives are making certain demands of me, and the pull of these demands is very strong. Surely you do not expect me to go against their wishes and all those dear and near to me and violate people's expectations. Surely you do not expect that against everybody's wishes that I now go off and leave everybody in the lurch to take care of my parents. And yet that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did require. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, let those who are spiritually dead look after themselves. You, however, must go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. It's also what Jesus expects from you and from me. The opinions of your friends and relatives do not come first. Even parents do not come first. God alone does. Everything and everyone are subservient to him. Of course, that doesn't mean that Jesus expects you and me to turn our back on everything, including our own family, even our aging parents. That's not what Jesus is saying. For else he would contradict himself. Throughout the Gospels, you will know that Jesus expects children to respect their parents and to take care of them. But what he is saying is that their care should not take precedence over God's kingdom. You may not use that as an excuse not to be involved in kingdom work. No, first, you must follow your Father in heaven. And that's also clear from the third dialogue recorded by Luke. This is the third point, namely that you must be willing to leave your mortal, your earthly family. Like the first person, this wannabe follower of Jesus boldly offers to follow Jesus all the way. But he comes with a condition. He says, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. What is he saying here? Well, again, we must consider that in the culture of that day. For in this, those days, he did not just leave home. It's not like today where kids at a certain age say, Mom and Dad, I'm old enough now, and I want to do my own thing. I think I'm big enough. I can do now what I want and leave home at any time. You can't really stop me, can you? But such an attitude was utterly foreign to the people of that day. No, in those days, the father of the house ruled supreme. The father's permission was required to leave home or also to take on a new venture. You did not make decisions on your own. Even if you were already married and had a family of your own, you would still go and ask permission from your family and especially from your father. Apparently, that gentle formality is still practiced in the Middle East. The one who leaves asks permission to go. He says, with your permission, may I go? And then if the family that remains behind agrees, they would say, okay, go, and God be with you, or may you go in peace. And with these words, permission would be granted. And so what is this aspiring follower 
asking to do. He is asking Jesus the right to go home and ask for approval from his family to follow him. However, all those standing around Jesus knew that this was merely an excuse. For they knew that a father in his right mind would not permit his son to go off on some questionable enterprise. The father would be concerned about his son's place in the world and in his material and physical well-being. So, this man's excuse is ready-made, shedding crocodile tears. He can loudly insist that he wants to go, but my father won't let me. The people knew that his apparent loyalty to his family was only an excuse not to follow Jesus. An old translation of this verse reflects this young man's intent very accurately. That translation reads, Let me first explain my case to those in my house. That translation shows that this young man, that this young man was not asking to go home and plant one last fond farewell kiss, kiss on his father's cheek and to hear words of encouragement from his mother as he was about to leave. In reality, he wanted the issue of following Jesus to be put under the authority of his parents. He is saying, I will follow you, Lord. But of course, my father's authority is higher than your authority. And I need his permission before I venture out. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus makes some very radical demands. He does not want you and me to be tied to anything in this life. Not even your parents who brought you up. No, he says your loyalty is always first to me. If it isn't, then your loyalty is divided and your heart is not in my kingdom. And that is why he also says on another occasion in Matthew 10, verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of course, it doesn't mean that you don't ask for their opinion or that what your family has to say to you doesn't matter. But ultimately, your responsibility is always first to God. Listen to how Jesus answers this third would-be follower. He says to him, No one having put his hands hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, to understand what this means, you have to understand the agricultural practices of that day. Let me tell you how a certain commentator by the name of Jeremiah describes it. He says, the very light Palestinian plow is guided with one hand. This one hand, generally the left, must at the same time keep the plow upright, regulate its depth by pressure, and lift it over the rocks and stones in its path. The plowman uses the other hand, to drive the unruly oxen with a goad about two yards long, fitted with an iron spike. At the same time, he must continually look behind the hindquarters of the oxen, keeping the furrow straight. This primitive plow needs dexterity and concentrated attention. 
If the plowman looks around, the new furrow becomes crooked. Thus far the description. The image is strong and clear. You need to pay close attention to what you are doing if you want to do a good job of plowing the field. You must be dedicated to your job. You must give it all you've got. And if you do not pay careful attention, you will hit the rocks and ruin the plow. If you are not constant, if you are constantly looking over your shoulder, your furrow will be very crooked, and you won't be able to continue. For then the next track will be even more crooked, and so on and so on. If you want to have a properly plowed field, you must start from scratch. Well, says Jesus, that's how it is with the kingdom of God. Whoever wishes to follow me must be willing to break every link with the past. Don't look behind you like the wife of Lot did. You must be willing to let go of your bed, your reputation within your own community, even your own family. They must all come in second place. You must not constantly be looking over your shoulder to see what others expect of you. No, you put everything to the test of God's word. You first see whether whatever endeavor you are about to undertake is in the interest of God's kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we live in this world, but we are not part of this world. You and I, we belong to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. There's a great cost involved in belonging to him alone. You must be willing to give up, you must be willing to give up everything here on earth. Why? Well, you know that what awaits you is something much greater, wonderful, and lasts forever and ever. And you have a foretaste of that now already. Because if you let go of your earthly possessions in that way, then you have peace, and you leave it in the hands of God. To follow Jesus also means something else, something delightful. It means to follow him who went to Jerusalem, not as his final destination, but from where he took his exit. For what did he do outside of Jerusalem? He ascended on high. For that is where his kingdom is. It is beyond this world. And that kingdom of which we now have already a foretaste is coming here to this earth. It is coming on the last day when heaven and earth will be reunited. Brothers and sisters, that's where we are headed if we follow Jesus. He is directing us to that final destination. He is taking us to the time when heaven and earth are reunited. Follow me, says Jesus. Trust me. Walk a straight line. Don't follow the crowds and be ruled by public opinion. Let me rule you. Don't get attached to this world and the things of this world. This world is full of darkness. I am the light. Travel along with me and you will be safe. Let me lead you. And I will never, ever lead you astray. I will lead you to your final destination, to be with me forever and ever. Amen.